All right, Sam. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the sufficiency of the Word and that the Word used by the Spirit of God points us to the beauty and the splendor of Jesus Christ. He is altogether lovely. He is the one who has given his all for us. That truly that emblem that we will speak of, the cross, that was such a shame in the culture of Jesus' day, even really today, Father, is the emblem that reminds us of the sacrifice of our Savior. And so, Father, aid us even this evening once again to be reminded of all that has been done on our behalf. That theme has been continued throughout all of the different sessions, both morning and evening. What a reminder we need to be reminded because we are a people who so quickly forget. And so aid us not to be a people who live unto our own selves, but to live unto the God who has called us. As we look at Philippians 2, may your word go forth. May your spirit have free freedom to be able to take the word, to convict the sinner of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Father, to encourage the one who has been made new as saints in Christ Jesus of all that they have been given, not to live unto themselves, but to live to you alone. And may all of it redound to your praise, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and following read, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the answer to all of those things again is yes for the believer, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? Because you are united with him. You are able to have this mind, which means that if somebody is not united to Christ by faith, they cannot share this mind. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this section we have been laying out the truth that the call of the gospel does not just call us to uh, an eternal home that someday we will be given in the sun, right? A pinch and a dash is not enough. This section of the text has been laying out the reality that we are to look continually to Christ, right? Don't fixate your, your eyes on the things of this life or the circumstances. It will drive you nuts, right? All it can bring is death and worry, right? But what an opportunity for us by the word of God, as we've been reminded in the mornings over and over again, right? To be pointed back to the sufficiency of Scripture and how the Scripture is used by the Spirit of God to point us to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit of God. 
We've been reminded in this section that it's not just simply that we look to him, but that all of our lives are now given over. How many times have you heard Romans 12, 1 and 2 cited, right? And I'm going to cite it. I already had it in my nose before it was cited all week. At the end of the time together, that this is really the only thing that is appropriate. Like there is nothing else worthy of our time and affections, our life's pursuit but to use all that God has given to us to advance the name of Christ. That if we were unsaved, it would make make sense because that's what unsaved people do, right? I tell my body, I'm like, why in the world are you surprised when unsaved people act like unsaved people? It should not be a surprise to you. Well, you don't understand. They were so mean to me at the DMV, right? Remember the DMV skit? It's like, why are you surprised? Right? There are saved people at the DMV. I actually met one today, right? Somebody who worked there for 13 years. But the majority of people at the DMV, like, probably are unregenerated. And guess what they get to deal with all day long? Like, why are you surprised that they act like unsaved people? But here's the sad part. We're oftentimes not surprised when unsaved people or saved people act like unsaved people. And it's usually here, right? We give ourselves a pass. And here within the text, Paul is laying out the reality. This is not true of the Philippian believers. They are this church, this church that has labored from the very beginning with Paul. They have continued to labor and to be spent. And this is not the wealthiest congregation, actually probably one of the poorest. And time and time and time again, they're using the resources that God has given to them to advance the name of Jesus Christ, to make Christ known, not just here, but out there, right? What an opportunity. And so here within the text, we've been laying out this reality, the truth that living in a manner out of verses 1, verse 27, that is worthy of the gospel will happen as these Philippian believers continue to remind themselves in verses 1 through 4 of how the Spirit of God brings about unity, not through unity, but through humility, right? Where each of us is considering the other better than ourselves, And then he moves into the second reality which we've been unpacking, that it happens not just through unity, through humility, but to constantly recall the sacrifice and the humility of our Savior. He moves, again, from the lesser, Paul, Timothy, the saints in Philippi, the overseers and the deacons. I don't think it's an accident that those two offices are named. And he moves from there to the greatest example, Jesus Christ himself, the eternal Son of God of God. Like there is no other religion that does that where the God becomes the created. But it's Christianity's message. And so as I was thinking through this latter section where we will walk through really the ending of this section of scripture, I was thinking through how often it is so very easy that no matter what state of life that we are in, that we love position, authority, and title. If you want to see that happen or flesh out in illustration form, do you remember if you are a younger sibling, the first time your parents left your older sibling in charge and said they're in charge, you have to listen to what they say. Like if you're the oldest sibling, not that bad, right? Because all of a sudden, you possess all the power, right? Like, you're like, okay, no, you sit there, don't move. No, don't get in that chair. Fold your hands, 
right? It's like, fold your hands where? What's going on? Like, are we in Sunday school or something like that? Right? Like, I was the middle child. I have an older sister. I haven't talked much about her this week. I hope she's not listening. But I remember the first time my sister was left in charge. Like, for me, as a younger brother, it was like horror upon horrors. Like, no! I have a younger brother, 10 years younger than me. He probably remembers the first time I was put in charge. Right? And and it's not a fun thing because we love taking title and authority and lording it. Like, we get this. Like, in the Korean culture, it's very normal to have a position based upon your birth order. It's very, very normal. Like, if, if the front seat is open and dad's driving, but mom's not there, the firstborn child gets that seat. It's just the way that it is. Right? Like, the other siblings don't even think about that seat. Like, don't look at that seat, because it's not for you, right? But if that firstborn son goes off to college, now the second child gets it, right? And, and I have a second son, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's mine now, right? And then the third, like, like but you got to wait. And then you got my daughter, and she's like, poor kid, right? She's like, I'm never going to get the front seat. I remember that being one of the discussions, even as Sarah and I were married, going, like, how is this going to happen? You know, when we had multiple kids and going, like, and Sarah grew up in a home where it's like, no, you take turns. I was like, what? Take turns for what? Why? That makes no sense. He's the firstborn son, right? Old Testament, he's going to get two-thirds, right? Like, you start to think through that, and we love position. And I remember, like, even growing up in my home where those cultural things, and we have them here in America, those cultural things um, became standards by which we govern. But what I love about the gospel is this, and this is really what Paul is saying. When the gospel of Jesus Christ truly transforms you, it impacts everything. Like, it takes a dad who in a culture like Korea would never say, I love you. Like, it's not because, like, Korean men don't love their children. They just don't say it. Like, I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and I remember as an adult child, as, a God, as the Lord was getting a hold of my dad, as he continued to grow in the gospel, I remember sitting outside a hotel in Marinette, Wisconsin. That means nothing to you. It's just where I ministered. My dad and I were sitting out on the porch area, and remember my dad, as a 30-something-year-old man, maybe I was that upper 20s or early 30s, I remember having a conversation with him and just hanging out at the hotel. And my dad said to me, hey, you know what? I need to tell you something. Because actually, I need to tell you two things. Because number one, I just want you to know this. I'm really proud of you. Korean people don't say that. Right? So I'm like, huh? Like, what, dad? I'm really proud of you. Ugly cry. He goes, and you know what else? I need you to know, I love you. Uglier cry. <laughs> like, I had no clue what was going on. I was like, what, what dimension did I like, just warp into? I'm just looking at him going, Dad, why are you saying this? Like, I already know this. He goes, I know. But you know, Korean, we don't, we don't do that. We don't say it. But I'm starting to realize, why? Who cares if my culture doesn't do it? The gospel mandates that I do it. It's helpful for you. Because it's good to be reminded that I am proud of you. It's good for you to be reminded that I do love you. Like, it's not like, hey, listen, I told you I loved you when you were born, and that's good enough. Now, if it changes, I'll come back and I'll let you know that, right? Like, that makes no sense, right? And so the gospel is continuing to get a hold of the believer's life. And as they look into the face of Christ, as they look into the word of God, and they are reminded of everything that they've been given in Christ, they don't take title and position as a means to get and get and get. It now enables us to use those things for the advancement of the gospel. And so we'll see at the end of this week, tomorrow, we'll see what chair my children take. Were they listening this week? 
Is it going to be like, hey, I get the two captain's chairs and you three little guys, you get back there. I don't know. You can text me or message me. I'll let you know how it worked out, right? But the reality is, like, I remember there's times even as an older brother, well, I will give the more honored thing to my brother. My brother's like, what are you doing? Like, he doesn't even know what to do. He's like, whoa, what's going on? This is weird. But what an opportunity we have to be able to transcend even the things that we were brought up in to allow the gospel of Christ to take preeminence, to Christ for Christ to truly be central in all that we do. We see this in the life of Christ before he goes to the cross work. In John chapter 13, after the triumphal entry, where what does Jesus do after he shares a meal with his disciples? He gets up. He girds up his loins, right? See, it's the old King James. I grew up on that, right? It was just, even as a kid, I was like, well, I don't know what that is, but that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> I, want, I want to be able to have garments to be able to lift up and gird up to my loins, right? And what does he do? He takes a basin. He takes the water, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Is that the way we live? I'm the dad. I'm the mom. I'm the firstborn. I'm the pastor. I'm the deacon. I'm the Sunday school superintendent. We love titles. Who cares? You know what? We ought to be chief and ready and quick as servants of Christ to set aside selfish ambition. One author speaks of this section of the text, which we'll jump into here, and he says this, that the only way for the Son of God to take on the form of a slave was to enter this world and be born as a man. That was it. That's the only option. He became flesh. He already was 100% God. And what do we find as we recall the working of Christ, as we continue that thought in verse 8? Paul writes here, and being found in human form. That translation is really hard. Um, that language of form is a difficult word for us. Uh, I don't have time to unpack it. It's not just that he appeared as a man. He was 100% man is the language here, Okay. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus himself, being found in human form, he humbled himself. And he did so, how? By what means, Paul tells us? By becoming obedient, not just to come and be in flesh, but Paul reminds us that he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. This language is crazy. It literally has the idea in Matthew 18, he who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we think of innocence, which I think is actually a component of that language in Matthew 18. But again, it's Eastern. Like we don't think this way. But the language here is of order and rank. Like why would you want when you are here in position to lower yourself down to here? But yet that's what our Savior did. He didn't just humble himself by coming, as Paul has already laid out, but he reminds us of the truth that he even humbled himself to put himself in the path of that which is normal for all human beings, the end which is called death. The language here, and we've been talking even about it this, uh, in the morning with Dr. Little, the language of parallelism is here. Look at Philippians 2, 7, and 8. What did he do? He didn't just humble himself to become obedient to the point of death, but he says here in verse 7, but he emptied himself in the previous verse, really paralleled with the language of the fact that he humbled himself. The language of by taking the form of the servant is paralleled later in verse 8 by becoming obedient to the point of death. This language of uh, by taking the form of a servant further modifies by be, saying being born in the likeness of men 
And this language of by becoming obedient to the point of death is further modified by the method by which he was willing to put himself in to die, which was not just a death, but even the death of a cross. I I think sometimes we've been saved for so long and we've gone to church for so long that we don't understand the horror of reading this. Like, think about being the Philippian believers as Paul is in prison, reminding them of all that Christ has done. Like, for us, a cross is something you wear around the neck. Like, John Stott in his book, I don't agree with everything, but the cross of Christ uses the illustration of the genuflecting, right? And, and, and we look at that and we're like, oh my word, like, that's so Catholic or whatever, right? But the reality is, like, the early church would actually use it, and they would actually point it outward like this. And this is the point. They would say, as I go, may the cross go before me. It's a great thing. I know it's become, like, this terrible connection, but the actual expression is wonderful. Because that's what we need. Because guess what? When I'm driving on the road and I'm getting in the left lane and I've, I move from Minnesota into Iowa and I'm trying to pass somebody on the left lane and almost always, like it's not 100%, but it's really high percentage. And I get over in the left lane and there's a person in the left lane going the same speed as the guy on the right. I need to be reminded as I go, may the cross go before me. Because I need that. Like my wife is like, well, remember their image bearer. Like, it'd be better for her to say, oh, I'm, I'm giving her ammunition, right? Don't forget the cross, right? Because it's like, it's like literally, I, I pull up, and guess what? High percentage of the time, it's not a Minnesota plate. You can guess which plate it is. And I'm like, it's for passing. Move over, right? It's like, it takes nothing for me to forget that I am a man by God's grace and through faith in the Son who's marked by the cross of Christ. Sam's dead. He no longer lives. This is what Paul is reminding us. Like, think of how different our homes would be, dads. Like, do you just sit upon your throne? Because if you're getting, like, if you're at my, my age, there's that one chair that you always sit in. It's dad's chair, right? It's got, like, those indents because dad's kind of a little bit bigger than he used to be, right? <laughs> Actually, quite a bit, if we're honest. I think, and we like just, like, I remember there's times, because this is what the gospel, like, you want to talk about practical of what it looks like to be a man who continues to recall the humility of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us? Here's what it looks like. It's really practical. Because I'm sitting there upon my throne with the legs kicked up, right? And I, I'm like, but I want to drink. And you know what? The fridge is like over there. And here's what I want to do, because I've had a long day, and nobody else, obviously, in my home had a long day. Not like me, at least. And I'll go, literally, there's times before Alexa, because now it's like, hey, Alexa, right? And then I make an announcement, right? But before that, I would just go like, hey, and somebody would come up. I'm like, hey, can you grab me a, you know, can you grab me a Diet Coke? Like, Diet Coke, yeah, Diet Coke. That's what I need, right? Here's what the gospel looks like as, as a cross goes before you. That's what it looks like. It really does. Like to be, I'm not saying you can't get your kids to do anything, but listen. Like I remember saying to my, my sister or my brother or something, and my mom would say like some kind of expression that's similar to God gave you two legs, get up and use them. But you know what? It doesn't just apply to them as kids. It applies to us as parents, doesn't it? Like, you're not there for our bidding and, our, and be our servants, our indentured servants. Doing 
How much better for the next generation to see a generation of adults who are transformed by the gospel continuing to recall this Christ who did not use his position as a means for him to gain and gain and gain, but rather gave for us. Would this transform your home? Like, is that practical? It better be. Would this transform your church? And I'm guessing you guys are all coming from really good churches. But it would. But what we oftentimes have, as opposed to the first section of first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, we have pastors who want to lord. And we have deacons who want to even be overlords. And they're, they're not reminding themselves that they're servants and they've been made saints. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. It's just my personality. Really? Well, guess what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, remember? He did rise from the dead. And that's pretty awesome. And so it doesn't matter what your personality is. Put it to death. Because you once were alive and dead, dead in sin and alive unto yourself. But by God's grace, those who place their confidence in Christ have died unto sin and have been made new in Christ Jesus. It would radically transform us. And so Paul uses this language that, again, Jesus Christ humbled himself, the language of becoming obedient to the point of death. One translation translates it this way. He walked the path of obedience. You want to look at, like we talked about Proverbs, we talked about Psalms, we talked about the different passages in Isaiah. You want to look at what that looks like? Look at Jesus, right? Like, like it would be, I, I've used this illustration so many times, but Listen, I'm, you might have that sibling that's older than you that like was really good and then like you're like the bad one. Like most of the time firstborns come along and they like bash down some doors so the next one is not so hard, right? Like I had a sister who didn't do that. She actually like built mortar and then like make decorations. <laughs> and then I came along and I knocked some stuff down, right? And punched my head through. And then I have a brother who came and Mack truck, right? Okay. So, but in any case, like, like we, we look at this and we're like, we, we look at this language, when he's speaking of the truth that Christ was willing to obediently follow the will of the Father, that this led him to the path of the Father. And we see pictured perfectly in the life and through the life of Christ, one who was not coming simply to just like uh, um, make us those that were more moral or those, those of us that were just trying to live up to some kind of like moral code or standard, but the one who perfectly met and perfectly obeyed everything that the Father had called him to do. And that obedience, that path of obedience, where did it lead? It led him not just to death, but a death on the cross. That's the, that's the death of a criminal. That's the death of shame. That's the death that as a Roman citizen... You could not be put to death in that way. And yet our Savior, the creator of the world, hung on the cross. This is the language, right? This is what Christ did. He set aside, and that's the, really the big illustration in Philippians 2, is that though he had all the rights as the eternal son, he did not grasp hold of those as something to be used for himself. But he willingly took and made the choice to go the path of obedience, which led him not just to incarnation, which is unbelievable humiliation, but even to the point of death, but not just any death, death on a cross. This language, one author says this, that the divine weakness, death at the hands of his creatures, his enemies, is really the divine scandal 
The cross was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. That's what he endured for us. Like, don't you think that this would aid you if you would look at Philippians 2, 7 and 8 and be reminded of what our Savior did for us? Again, so many times the gospel, we preach the gospel, and those of us that have been saved for any length of time, it's easy to just check out. Oh, here he goes. He's going to talk about the cross again. I've already done this part. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem in your sanctification. You don't look at the cross enough, <laughs> right? He goes on and he, again, doesn't just say that he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, but he says in verse 9, what resulted because of that? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul retells the gospel story by beginning in divine mystery, right? Eternity past. Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, comes and not only enters human history, but he goes by means of not just human life, but even death, death on a cross, obeying the will of the Father, which then resulted, the therefore in verse 9 aids us to see what God did as a result of that for the Son and to the Son. He highly exalted him. You've, again, if you've been saved for any amount of time and in church, you've heard the expression, the cross before the crown. But that doesn't seem to like want to take play any part of application in our lives, right? Like we love the crown part. Prayer, prayer, right? And then like you get heaven. You get all this stuff up here. I've got a mansion, right? It's like we love that. That's as country as I get, by the way, right? But like, like this, like this crown, the, we love this part of justification. We love the glorification and the crown that's coming. But why would it be any different for us if this was the path that our Savior went? Jesus actually says this. He says, listen, if you are going to love me, know this, the world's going to hate you. Like that is not cultural Christianity right now. Churches are in droves, like abandoning all of Scripture or large portions to make themselves relevant with the world around them. They're uninterested in having the world hate them. And you can look at that on an ecclesiastical level, but you can also look at that on a personal level. Like it takes so very little for us to just shrink away. And like we want to be accepted by the world. Like maybe applicationally here for the young people. Like who cares what that 16, 15-year-old kid thinks about you? Really? Like that's that important? I promise you, when you get to this age, it's not that important. I know that's hard to believe, but trust me, when you get here, it's not going to be that important. And here within this language, Paul uses, he calls the believer to recognize this. That the way of, of the believer is always going to be the way of hatred from the world and suffering for the pur uh, pur purposes of God. And all of that is being used by God as a means for us to be able to advance his name. And what he does here within this language of the text is that this is what God did through the cross work that, or the life that led to the cross work. The Father gave Jesus a name. Now, we're not going to get that name. It's Jesus' name, not ours, right? And again, there's a lot to unpack here. I think the name here literally is the name Lord. Let me just read you what one commentator, Carson, says about this. He says, when Paul says that God gave Jesus a name that is above every name, he is saying much more than that the Father simply renames him or the like. In the ancient world, and we've heard this already this week, names were more than convenient labels. What it meant here is that God assigned Jesus a name that reflects what he had achieved and that acknowledges who he is. Probably, and there is debate, the name that Paul has in mind is Lord. 
To give such a title to Jesus, therefore, is tantamount to confessing Jesus' deity. Now listen to this. But now, as the triumphant, resurrected God, man who was God-man, who was once crucified, and he now reigns. So let me ask you this question. Did Jesus already receive this name? And the answer is yes. Is he the resurrected is he the resurrected son of God who, who overcame death and hell through his finished work? Did he receive that name and did the next part of the text happen? Like look there in verse, again, 8. He says there in, uh, in Philippians 2, 8, and being fa- found uh, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Has that happened yet? Like, you heard that this morning. It's not done yet. That day's coming. And if I had time to unpack it, I would take you to different passages like Isaiah 52 and 53, where it will, it speaks of the reality that the one who will, where people will bow and confess the lordship of God in in Psalm 52 and 50, or Isaiah 52 and 53 is linked in exact construction to this one who is given this name, but that event hasn't happened yet. It's coming, right? We talk about that. Like, how much better for us to confess Christ now as Lord, because you eventually will. But at that, on that day, it will not lead to eternal life. It will lead to eternal damnation. Like, if you're here and you don't know Christ as Savior, I pray that, again, this week has been a week that stirs in your heart, like, who is this Jesus? Is, this, is he really who the Scripture says he is? And if he is, is there really eternal life in him? And is it really, is he really able to not only take away my sin, but is he able to give me new life? And Paul here is validating all of that. Yes, 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 yes. And if you're here as a believer, the reality is that this Christ, who is unlike any other human being, is the Christ who has been given to us. And so there is an eschatological component here, really in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. It really encompasses everything and under the earth, right? That every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, there's coming a day when this will happen. The text is promising that Jesus ultimately will have the last word and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I've had different opportunities um, as a believer. And one of the coolest opportunities that I've had is I've been in different conferences where multiple different people from multiple different countries were gathered together. One person was preaching, and actually in a couple conferences I was at, there were multiple men who preached in different languages, so you all had to have an earpiece. It wasn't just English speaking and then translating, okay? One of the coolest things about a setting like that is you have a bunch of people whose mother tongue is not the same. And so they picked songs, like Michael did this week, but they picked songs that were all translated into different, like, languages. And if you've never experienced this, like, it's glorious. And you will someday, I promise. It might not be here, but it will be on that day, right? Every tribe and nation will gather together. 
But like you're sitting here and then there's like Spanish speaking people over here, Korean speaking people over here, right? There's like an Italian or maybe an Italian speaking person over here. It's awesome. Sing Amazing Grace like that. Like I'm, I remember sitting there as a child one time when I was about 14, 15 years old and everybody was singing Amazing Grace around and I couldn't sing. I stopped singing. Like I knew the words and I was supposed to be singing in the language that I knew, which was going to be English because even though I'm Korean, it's not, I don't read that well in Korean. And I remember, I remember sitting there and I had to stop because I knew that everybody was doing it in different tongues, like legitimate tongues, right? <laughs> Languages. And guess what? We were adoring the same Christ. We we're speaking of the same God. I know, like it sounds awesome, right? Like for those of you who know other languages, like you've experienced this. Maybe not to this magnitude. Maybe it's just like your mom or your dad on this side who don't speak English that well. And so you're at a church and you're singing a song and they got their translation. My mom would bring, my mom and dad, when they come to visit our church, they bring their Korean hymnal. Because they can't speak, they can't read or they can't sing the English and it's too hard for them. And so like they have their Korean hymnal right there and they find out what number it is and then they start to sing. And just standing there, it's like English over here on my left. Right? And then Korean on this side. It's like surround sound. It's really cool. This is his language. Like there's coming this day when this one who went up to the cross one time to sacrifice himself, who the Father has given him the name that is above every name, will finally have all of creation, both things on earth, things in heaven, right? The unseen created world, things under the earth, even the demonic hosts will bow the knee and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we've been walking through a passage we know quite well. He's going to go on and he's going to lay out another therefore in the upcoming section, which really lays out practically what this even looks like within the Philippian body, not grumbling and complaining, not being those who are terrorized and tremble, but before he gets to that section, he ends, he, he, he encapsulates between the mandates at the beginning and at the end of it, this beautiful Christological hymn. And he doesn't do it to just teach us Christology. It's not like a systematic theology class here. He does it to stir the heart of the Philippian believers and to remind them in song all that they have given. Why? So that they would live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you even as you go home in the upcoming days and you go to your church, that you would let rich biblical songs do exactly what Paul is trying to do with this hymn in the life of the Philippian believers. Don't just get up and sing the power of the cross with just lyrics. Listen to what you are singing I literally said to a couple of the kids up here that there are a lot of hymns. Like this is before Michael got up and said anything. I said to them, you know what? I think it's actually appropriate for us at times to turn around and face each other. Because some songs are written to glorify God. Other songs are written in a manner that the scriptures are actually mandated to one another. It's like one of my dreams in my church. I, like, I haven't done it to them because they're mostly Scandinavian. And that's really hard if you know Scandinavians, right? Or if you are one. But there's times when I'm like, okay, everybody stand up, face each other. Like there's been moments in our church where we've had like different cantatas and things. And there's times when it's so packed out and like I'm sitting right there. And then the next 
the people who are singing on the stage are like right here. And there's times when the singers are like, they can't go anywhere. And if it's a song that we are exhorting one another, I'll stare right at the singer and I'm like singing to them and they know what I'm doing. So they're trying not to look at me, but like, how do you not, right? And then finally, I remember there's one time one of them just looked right at me and sang right at me. And I was like, yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you, right? We're exhorting one another to remind each other, to stir one another up through song. Not just, not the sufficiency of self, but the sufficiency of Christ. And so the text is doing what we have been reminded of through object lessons, right, from Pastor Dave, through the Old Testament from Dr. Uh, Dr. Little, from the New Testament from the book of Philippians. Your kids have been instructed in these ways. And over and over and over again, we have been reminded that we have been saved by another for another. That Romans 12, 1 and 2 truly is true. That after Paul lays out all the exhortations of uh, Romans 1 through 11, he then says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that which you have experienced from God through Christ, to do what? To present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is easier to read, really hard to live. Because you know what we do when we get status or position or title or rank? We use it for our own advantage. Because we're not interested in heaven, and we're not interested in recalling the work of the Son on our behalf. And so the Lord goes, okay, with regularity, partake in the Lord's table. I'm going to put the cross before you as a part of worship as you gather together. The next time you take the Lord's Supper with your church, hold it there for a second. Remind yourself of the truth that you did not die on the cross. Remind yourself that you did not raise from the dead. Remind yourself that Christ did. And when you do, you will partake. And you will not do it in an unworthy manner. I actually, applicationally, really quickly, if you've never not taken the Lord's Supper, something's wrong. Like, you should be assessing. There should be times when you're like, I don't know if I'm really able to do this right now. Like, I think we just, again, it's just a thing we do. What are we doing? Why do you think the Lord instituted it? To remind us of the sacrifice of our Savior. To utilize all of our lives, not to live unto ourselves, but to follow Christ. When I saw the theme that was given to me, diving deeper, going all in for Christ, I was like, wow, that's a good theme. The verse is a really applicable one. And I was wanting to do some other things before I was given the theme, and I was like, okay, that's not going to work. And I was like, oh, this text would be good. It's a really familiar one. If you've been safe for any amount of time, you've heard a lot of messages out of these, these passages, these two chapters. I pray that as you go from here, it would be a reminder to you of the inspiration and the sufficiency of these scriptures. That what was so commonplace, used by the Spirit of God, could again ignite in us a fire that God has begun in us. I made the statement that one of the things I love about my mom and dad is that not only did God save them, but they never got over it. I think if we're honest, applicationally, a lot of us have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
but we forgot them. May God aid us by the word of truth, by the spirit of God, to be pointed to Christ, to see him afresh each time, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, that this one who came and gave his all for us to die on the cross is the one who also calls us to abandon self-living, to follow him, to know him here, but also to know him and make him known. Let's pray. Father, aid us by your kindness to not be a people who simply hear the words and then straightway forget what manner of man we are, but aid us to be those who would continue to allow the word of God by the spirit of God to point us to Jesus Christ. And may all of that redound to your praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.